Hey guys, I'm Olivia. And I'm Eddie. And this is The Disclosure. Bringing you all things name, image, and likeness. And college sports. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Disclosure. We are here with Eddie and Dematria today, so I will let Dematria introduce herself to the audience. <laughs> so I'm Dematria Willingham. I'm a 2L at LSU Law, and I also serve in the Athletics Compliance and NILSU Department as a legal intern. I did run track at UC Irvine, a smaller Division One school in um, Irvine, California, so I'm a track lead short sprint. Okay. Nice, nice. And <laughs> a former colleague of both Eddie and I, so we're super yep. excited to have you on. Also, it's uh, National Girls and Women in Sports Day, so shout out to you two. Woo-hoo. Oh, I'm driving the podcast today, I forgot. So today, <laughs> we're uh, talking about kind of the what ifs and what could happen if, um, you know, California log slides one way or another and athletes become employees slash get employment rights or, you know, all those things that are floating around California. So I just kind of wanted to bring... Dematria on because one she's a current currently in the space and two she's a former athlete and three she's from California so she's in the mix <laughs> so I want to talk about like title nine um days off TMP just all the things that could like change throughout college athletics so I know they wanted to in one of the cases I was reading they wanted to pay all the student athletes twenty five thousand dollars is that correct yeah, $25,000. And then any other money that they make or any other revenue that they generate, it will be like in a trust, I believe, after they graduate. Do you think like uh, do you think like a lot of athletic departments could afford that? Absolutely not. <laughs> I do not think that's very sustainable. Um, yeah, literally only the, you know, really big, robust just ones will be able to survive that. Uh, I don't really think like I said, I don't think that's sustainable for many reasons. I'm not an expert on uh, law. That's why I have you two around. But correct me if I'm wrong. Title IX applies to all in- government-funded events, right? So, like, police. Yeah. Sports. So, so yeah. Let's let's give the people a little background on Title IX. Yeah. So, athletic programs are considered educational programs and activities. So there's three basic parts of Title IX as it applies to athletics per the NCAA. First is participation. So it requires that women and men be provided the same opportunities to participate in sports. So um, Title IX doesn't require that institutions offer identical sports, but they have to have an equal opportunity to play. The second being scholarships. So Title IX requires that female and male student athletes receive athletic scholarship dollars in proportionality. Um, So in proportion to their participation, not, you know, equal per se, but in proportion to the amount of females versus males participating in sports. And then uh, the other benefits that go along with that is that it requires equal treatment of female and male student athletes um, in equipment, in scheduling games and practices, um, in travel days and allowance, the list goes on. Access to tutoring, coaching, locker rooms, facilities, uh, medical training, basically anything you can think of that would come into dealing with playing um, in their sport. So it it doesn't only apply to athletics, but when we're speaking in the athletic sense, those are the three big categories. 
so then my follow-up question to that thank you for that uh is how does that affect them if they become employees like does title nine go out the window does title nine still apply is it like a partial application you might not know the answer to that but that was my first thought like because just from a revenue generation standpoint if you know a california school has to you know pay everyone twenty five thousand dollars there's only we all know the two sports they're going to try to keep and they're going to cut the other two or the other the rest of the athletic department and then is it like from a title nine standpoint are they do they have to keep equivalency sports to match the other two or because they're employees is it just like whatever so i know right now the proposal has men's basketball football and women's basketball so right there already that's already like title nine out the window um I don't, I'm not super familiar with labor and employment law, but I don't think in the workplace, like there's a set like, oh, you have to have this amount of women employees or this amount of men employees, or you have to pay them the same or like, I don't think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Olivia, if you know, but I don't think Title IX applies in that way when you talk about the employee sense. No, so the law, the issue is the law requires educational institutions to maintain mm-hmm. the policies and then the practices and the programs that don't yeah. discriminate against anyone on the basis of gender. So yeah. um, it was originally enacted mainly for elimination of discrimination against women and yeah. girls um, historically, but it applies to educational institutions. So if they were to become employees that changes the entire dynamic right because yeah yeah that's what I was thinking it would change because now I mean yes they're still athletes but if they're employees we're not classifying them as student athletes anymore that wouldn't I don't know yeah that I mean that's the whole point of the conversation but so I really think in that sense I don't think title nine would apply but I I could be wrong um no I think you're right I I don't think it would apply which is what I'm worried about it also goes against like, you know, the NCAA, they, they say a lot of stuff, but their core thing is amateurism and like protecting amateurism. So once they become employees, like a lot of the, a lot of the, like the benefits student athletes are granted are completely out the window. Um, I wonder though, from a uh, employment standpoint, if you, a California school, is USC's private, correct? Or is it public? USC is a private school. So the, and which is interesting about how they filed the suit is um, they put UCLA, which is a public institution and a private institution, which is very strategically smart because you're, you know, kind of addressing all angles, basically, you know, getting public and private like that was very strategic. But I think I think the charges are dropped against UCLA and it's just against USC right now um, yeah. from what I've been seeing. Yeah. And so the other thing about Title IX is that the equitable protections for women under Title IX only apply to educational opportunities rather than employment opportunities. So making college athletes professional really would be, I don't want to generalize, but the end of Title IX in relation to college sports and equal opportunities for women. Well, my question just from a women's standpoint is if UCLA is public and USC is private is so like Olivia works for a like a private company and I work for the University of Cincinnati like a public school so like yeah. I'm a public employee she's a private employee would it yep. 
would like those rules apply to then if you go to a private school, you're a private employee. If you go to public school, you're a public employee. You know, no, so it's it's well, so it's it's different for Title IX purposes. So Title IX does not apply to schools uh, that do not receive federal funding, meaning like private schools or and universities that are entirely funded from another source and don't include the federal government. It, it they aren't obligated under mm-hmm. the same Title IX pro- prohibitions. Whereas a public university is subject to all of those. Now, again, if they become employees, Title IX essentially goes away, right? Because it it funds educational opportunities. Now, I did yeah. notice that in when we're talking about California, in the bill, they did frame it very strategically um, to say that most of that funding would go to educational opportunities for student athletes. So I don't know how that would come into play. But it's interesting that their focus seemed to be on, you know, pursuing higher education for all of these athletes. So it makes you wonder if that would still come into play um, with it being geared towards educational opportunities, but they're still employees, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. It's like when you get (laughs) tuition remission when you work for a school for like two or three years. Like, is that like, are you going to get your like money back in tuition remission for your scholarship and then you get your paycheck on top or, I don't know, I think there's a lot of different ways it can go and none of them look too good for women's sports, but I, I can't imagine that California would try to just, you know, cut all the women's sports, especially with uh, California yeah. being like a big center of the pack. well, the Big Ten now and half the pack. 12 <laughs> and having like just a long history of like female athletics, you know, like women's soccer. You know, they produce a national yeah, championship every basketball, year. Basketball, basketball, throwing, women's basketball, yeah, gymnastics. So yeah, yeah. I can imagine they track would and field. Put that in yeah, yeah. So that was actually an interesting part of the Los Angeles Times article that I read about. It was that the bill has actually already been amended because the original one asked for Title IX protections and mechanisms in place to curb the cutting of non-revenue sports. But those parts have actually been removed to fully focus on revenue sharing. So I'm very interested in the implications um, for athletic department budgets, but also handling Title IX issues. Well, I wonder if, so like I said, we're talking about hypotheticals, like if this goes live tomorrow and then, you know, uh, California, let's just say California starts doing it, that first check I'm thinking that first check when everyone gets 25K, the only two schools left standing are USC and UCLA, maybe Stanford. Like, I can't imagine. I haven't seen too many athletic department budgets in my life. I've only actually seen two from two different schools. But I can't yeah. imagine the, the like, Pepperdine is going to be at a front that, you know? Or did I say it right? Is it Pepperdine or Pepperdine? Pepperdine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't imagine Pepperdine well, is going to front that. Pepperdine's a private institution, so maybe (laughs) but um yeah it's very hard for me to see like I said sustainability I mean could you have all those like even you know my um alma mater I don't think it'd be sustainable there because we just don't we wouldn't have the money for it so it's very yeah USC I don't even know if UCLA to be honest with you could sustain that but they might get away with it I mean because like does their football like I don't know their football hasn't been super good in I don't know how long but I know obviously men's basketball is a big thing there mm-hmm. that would be like obviously the you know the chunk of the money so it would be really interesting to see who could actually like sustain that um well they're about to get yeah. a bajillion dollars from the big 10 so maybe 
Well, so here's the other thing that I found interesting about the article from the Los Angeles Times was that they made the comparison, like, let's put the hypothetical out. In the case that USC football made $10 million more in 2022 than it did in 2021, then all of the gain would be going to feeding a player's degree completion fund. But the department would be able to continue to use the same amount from 2021 to fund the rest of its sports and avoid this like doomsday scenario of, you know, cutting women's sports. Um, but again, the, the interesting point about all of this to me is not so much sustainability, but the fact that the school is taking a majority of, of that profit right off the top from the athletes. And I think from an NIL standpoint, what we've seen so far is companies and athletic departments trying to um, encourage or educate student athletes about how much money they can retain. So a lot of the clients that I have heard of want to maximize the profit for the student athlete and minimize the profit for the university, because this brings us, I think, right back where we started is that the university is making so much money off of these kids to begin with that they should have their own right to capitalize on their name, image, and likeness without anybody else interfering. And I think that complicates the, I mean, the whole process that we have in motion right now. This is an open question. So obviously there's the, the, where we have before where they weren't able to capitalize on their own NIO. And we have like the extreme of them becoming employees. And then we have where we are right now, which isn't perfect, but just open question for both of you. Like, I think per a couple amendments to some guidelines, we're in a good spot. Like, I really don't think that, at least for my interactions with student athletes, I think they don't really feel like, like, oh, I'm being like caged in or I can't do anything like that. And I just have one school I interact with. So Olivia probably can speak to it more, but I just don't think we're in such a bad spot that we need to be making drastic changes. I feel like we're in a good spot. I can speak to it. Um, in a general sense, because we work with several schools, but my understanding is that at this point, it's still so new to our athletes that these kids are really just happy making any money on any brand deal that they get. And I think that's still the attitude. And, you know, I went to the NILSU event last week and I heard Meta speak at that event the positive messages that came out of the table that I was at with all my student athletes while Meta was talking about building your brand, but also capitalizing on your name, image, and likeness and really digging into who you are was that these kids are actually very interested in learning about how to build their personal brand, but also how to create a sustainable model of income so that they can learn how to use that long-term, which is something that you didn't see college kids, much less college student athletes taking responsibility for before. So I think making them do the work with help, of course, with education is one of the vital parts of this process for them to be prepared to go on to their adult lives. Right. I completely agree. That, which is why I feel like... I second that, yeah. And Demetria, like you can speak to this too because you're on the ground floor with them every day. 
Yeah, no, I second this. I definitely piggyback off of what you said. I think they're just at the point where they're just so excited to really have the opportunity and, you know, be able to, you know, finally capitalize off their brand, you know, build their brand. Um, you know, like you said, build a sustainable cash flow and, you know, really build something instead of just, you know, before it was like, oh, you know, I'm just, you know, going to school, you know, playing my sport. I'm not worried about the other stuff, building my brand, you know, building my network or anything like that. And I think now the focus is shifting and that's definitely been positive. And I haven't really heard, you know, from being on the ground, I haven't really heard much negative things about it. Or, I mean, even all the guidance and stuff, like they've still been pretty positive about that. I think the guidance has like made us more <laughs> upset than them. Like, I think they're just like, you know, no, doing their thing. <laughs> yeah yeah they're still figuring it out they're like wait what do I have to do to get paid okay yeah but um you know one one of the things I noticed about this article uh about the new California bill well and first of all I guess we should say this this bill needs to make it through the senate and then through a bunch of committees in the assembly and then the assembly floor before it moves on to the governor's desk at all so I mean this is all hypothetical as of right yeah. now and I I hope it remains that way. But one of the things that the article mentioned was that the PAC-12 is completely renegotiating its media rights contracts for 2024 right now, um, which should bring significantly more revenue from the conference. And, you know, then you have the argument, should these kids participate in revenue sharing? And right now with the NCAA conference, and student athlete revenue sharing is completely impermissible under the interim policy, broadcast revenue and NIL revenue. Um, so it's, it's quite a hot topic right now. And I'm wondering from y'all's perspective, since you guys work with specific universities, how successful do you think your athletes would be in a revenue sharing scenario? Do you think it would be more like a group licensing agreement? Or do you think this is like something that maybe they're not quite ready to handle? I think football and basketball ate it up. Yeah, absolutely. They would, <laughs> they would absolutely eat it up. Um, and it might be, and I wonder if they did, you know, the revenue sharing, would it be like everybody gets the same amount or would it be, you know, your big quarterback and your your big key players, you know, get more money? Like how, how are we going to split that up? What's that going to look like? Um, that would be really interesting to see. Yeah, but, I don't know um, how they split it up per sport because you know, like absolutely, our, like our women's soccer team is not driving the same viewership as our our football team. Yeah, so how are we splitting that up? How are we doing that? Are we doing it by if if you don't start, are you still getting the same? Like, yeah, that it would be a lot. Yeah, and I think to that point, you know, they're they're already doing group licensing agreements with like, for example, LSU football has a group licensing agreement where they all have their names on jerseys, right? Am I right? Yeah. So I think there could be a model that would work well if you structured a group licensing agreement where everyone got paid equally, because I think whether you're on the the field or the court, or you're sitting on the bench, you have cameras, just from a media perspective, you have cameras coming at you from every angle. Uh, For a broadcast purpose, I would argue as a media rights specialist that I think any level of participation in the sport should be credited. They're showing up like they're showing up for a job. And in my personal opinion, I think that if you are putting that much effort into practice and 
team building and you go out on the court and you sit the bench the whole time and you're yelling your head off, you should get paid as much as the guy who's dunking. But that's my personal opinion. Yeah. And I think you have, that's a very fair opinion and it's very equal, but I can tell you now, like, I feel like some people would be like, well, they're a walk-on or they're on the bench and it, it totally. Just, Totally. that's why I'm saying maybe a part of me is like mm, maybe they're not ready for that because if you give them like you know the big quarterback the same check as a walk-on they're gonna be like man like why are we getting the same check and yeah that that would have to be some interesting conversations that would have to be had yeah and um, I wonder you know like in our last podcast when we were talking to David Fleshman about this um who's renowned in the Baton Rouge and New Orleans area for being a great sports attorney he was talking about how you know locker room dynamics have always been there and I'm wondering, is this so different from the quarterback getting the $100,000 deal and the walk-on getting the $20,000 deal or whatever it is? Or could the media rights aspect really play into a higher tension? I think mm, that's a good one. would make a much higher tension than that because then because the money difference would be crazy yeah, it would probably be astronomical. <laughs> like think about if you play in the big 10 like highest media rights in college football you have it's actually not even that whatever conference you play in you're they're going to go through their media team and gonna, they're going to go like okay this person is worth this much to us this person's bringing in viewership and this person is not and they're going to pay you based off that that's different than like oh, my teammate has 88,000 followers on TikTok and, you know, likes chocolate and gets deals from, you know, this cookie company. That That's different. This is like putting a value on a person and saying, okay, like, you are worth more than him. Yeah, like that, that's different. I think that would create locker room tension. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. I will say yeah. credit to all student athletes still. Like, I feel like I saw a statistic that said like 93% don't think NIL creates locker room tension. Like most most student athletes, at least at least for my student athletes, I'm sure you, you feel the same way at LSU. Like they're pretty chill. Like they're not really too concerned about watching other yeah. people's pockets. But I do yeah. think that when you add in like that type of media right um, deliberation and discussion, it might get a little because then you bring in coaches to it, it. It'd become a whole thing. I don't. I don't think it's a good idea. Yeah, I think we're we're we need to wait and pump the brakes on that and. I mean, it might come soon, but I, I definitely think that would have a ton of tension and just it'd probably tear up locker rooms, to be honest. Um, and coaches would have weird, like, yeah. Also, like, would it would it not given apart from amateurism, the second thing the NCAA loves is a fair playing field. Would it not give the schools with the biggest media rights deals a recruiting advantage? Like, wouldn't everyone be trying to rush to the Big Ten? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely going to, you know, Michigan I'm getting way more money off the media like I don't even have to worry about NIL deals I'll just get my you know TV rights and, like check like what yeah, yeah exactly and just for all of our listeners generally this would be a group licensing deal which essentially allows revenue to be shared among all athletes in the group so um that would obviously be the ideal model if it was equal but you know, their NIL value does have a part in the group licensing deal usually. So what do y'all think about other employment benefits? I know we were just talking about that, but back to employment, like uh, time off. I'm really interested in the time off piece of them being employees. 
you know, we have the TMP violations if you don't they don't get a certain amount of time off, blah, 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 and compliance talk. But if they're employees, I feel like all that compliance stuff goes out the window. Like they can work you seven days a week, just like in the NFL. Yeah. Um, yeah, no TMP. You just you're on salary or whatever you're on. I, I mean, it'd be interesting if they put them on hourly, which that would be weird. <laughs> but I mean, possibility. But um, yeah, basically they could work you seven days a week, twelve hours a day. Um, if they say you got practice all day, you got practice all day. Like that would be very interesting. People would really be like, "Wow, maybe it's not a good idea to be an employee because I don't want to work all day." I think yeah. the other thing is like student athletes have historically pushed for years for more protection and more freedom and more rights, and the benefits that come with being an employee should be considered a good thing however like you're pointing out it would come at a cost oh yeah and then also it's just a piece of this is a little bit but like you know what's the termination like what grounds can you get terminated under um can they just you know for cause without cause like that would be interesting because like what if you have a bad game and the coach is like oh yeah you're done like I'm cutting your contract get out like or if, oh, I want to go to Oklahoma now. And it's like, oh, no, your employee contract term was two years. Um, now you're going to have to, you know, buy this out in order to move on and, you know, pay $2 million or whatever. Like, I think all that would just be a mess, <laughs> complete mess. Yeah, But that's a possibility. Have, I can't imagine they've had too many, like, collegiate protections as far as, like, I think you can start paying them for their performance. Like, you can put in salary incentives. And if not them, then the california collective can i mean at that point if they're employees like i really don't see why you couldn't say hey quarterback one at whatever school if you throw for five thousand yards we'll give you five thousand dollars or like x amount of money because they're employees and i mean like at this point like they have left NCAA. like they're they have made their own football league at this point so i also think that the transfer portal becomes the most interesting thing ever in this model because then are they transferring or are they like, can you trade players? Possibly. Hmm. Yeah. It would make it more like a kind of a free agency. Depends on the um, contract. Yeah. That literally, it would literally just depend on, you know, what, what it says, like literally like, okay, like termination clauses or how can you move? Or there might be non-compete clauses, which would be insane to put in there, but it might be like, you can't go to any other SEC school. Now you're out of luck, or you can't go to any other Big Ten school, and they they absolutely could do that. You see it all the time with non compete um, non compete clauses. So that would just be wow. These contracts would be fun to read. <laughs> well, I'm thinking like imagine you you like for the schools that are more like big on academics, like you know your Vandy's, your Notre Dame's, Michigan's. Like imagine like in your contract, it's like oh you fail a class, uh, we dock you 10k for every like. Or we'll give you grade-based payments. Like, if you get an A, we'll give you an extra 10K. But if you get a C or a D or an F, you know, like, we'll dock your pay. Like, I could see those things coming into play, too, to encourage, like, finishing your degree. Or if you graduate, we'll give you 100K extra. I wonder how that would overlap with education. Because there's so many rules around public universities and how they manage education. And, I, I mean, it makes you wonder. It would have to be the employment would have to be completely separate from the university with no ties. So no scholarships, you know, that sort of thing goes away as soon as you start talking about employee status, unless you want all the red tape. Have you guys seen the new memo that Nancy Blade put out? 
Yeah, about the standard of review for NIL violations. Crazy. So the NCAA said that the presumption, um, the standard of review is basically guilty until proven innocent, which is very interesting because usually in a court of law, it's innocent until proven guilty. But this is a really high standard um, for reference for you guys that aren't legal. But basically, the NCAA can bring forth a violation based off of circumstantial evidence, which is not hard evidence. Um, just basically kind of like a word of, word of mouth, basically. If someone says, well, this person did this um, and they have the circumstances to prove the violation, then basically you're going to get charged with the violation unless, as it stated in the memo, that you have evidence proving that you didn't do the violation. So if you just don't happen to have evidence that proves that you didn't do whatever they said you did in regards to NIL violations, by the way, not overall everything. It's just specifically about NIL violations. And this is problematic for many reasons because I feel like this kind of puts schools already at an automatic disadvantage about it um, regarding NIL. And also it's interesting from the collective perspective because it also states in there that basically like schools are on the hook for the actions of collectives, which is yeah. very problematic. I think that is absolutely wild. And I, so I follow one of my favorite sports law attorneys to follow is Mitt Winter. It's at Winter Sports Law uh, on Twitter. And when he put this out, he said, notably, the NCAA will presume a violation occurred when available information supports that behaviors related to an NIL agreement were contrary to NCAA rules. That is such a wishy-washy standard, in my oh, opinion. Yeah. I mean, oh, it's yeah. like, it, what is it? Anything goes? Like, what what kind of available information that supports a behavior do you need? Yeah. And then word of mouth? Is it a tweet? Is it an email? Like... But then, then again, there's a presumption, right? So basically, you have to disprove whatever circumstantial evidence that they're trying to present, which makes it so much harder. But on the collective front, and I, I can say this because it's public knowledge, my company um, basically functions as a compliance standard for many collectives, and um, my job as an attorney is to make sure that every contract that I write is NCAA and state law compliant as far as NIL. I can tell you that other collectives that are not taking the step that the collectives we work with are, are certainly not reporting everything, which is a problem in itself. But now it's like, is that a problem or is that an advantage now for schools that they don't know what's going on? Because you would think you would want a balance between the compliance department or the NIL department having full disclosure, right? Because as a student athlete, you have to disclose or you're supposed to disclose every deal that you're a part of to your compliance office. Or do we want to just say, we're going to throw our hands up in the air as a collective and uh, we're just not going to report it because it's not even worth getting the university in trouble. And it's it's unfortunate that this is now the line of thinking because I really think it's going to cause more problems for compliance, both on a violation standard end and then also for controlling their collective. Because like you said, they're kind of on the hook for the collective's actions, whether they like it or not at this point. Yeah, and I definitely think that's going to 
kind of make compliance officers and I don't know, NIL departments that put like pressure on like, okay, make sure they're educated, make sure they're not doing this. But at the same time, it's like, you cannot control the collective. You really can't, you don't know what they're out there doing. Um, and it's not fair that as a compliance department, you know, you have to sit back and the next thing you know, you hear about four violations and you're like, dang, like now I got to sit here and find all this evidence. And mind you, most compliance departments are not super involved in like the NIL process. So they might not have a clue what's going on, you know, in their NIL department. So for them to go and find this evidence and, you know, already start from the presumption of, you know, guilty until proven innocent, that is, that is very tough. Very, very tough. Yeah. And I, I want to know y'all's perspective on this because obviously for you guys being on the ground floor and being in the NIL department that works with the compliance office, what do you think the level of communication is with a collective? If you guys have one, how do you guys manage that? And how do you think moving forward, like what would be a best practice uh, for those collectives in order to keep you guys out of trouble? Because really it's the university that gets punished either way. So communication wise, I would say, and this is probably true for the majority, but I feel like compliance and IL and the collective communication, I don't feel like it's very like everybody's like a big happy family and we're always communicating. We always know what's going on. I feel like it's very like most of the time, everybody's not in the loop. You don't really know exactly what's going on or, you know, like three weeks later, four weeks later, um, which with this new memo coming out and, you know, the presumption, I feel like that needs to change. Like everybody really now, it's very like imperative for everybody to be in the loop. You need, the compliance department needs to be talking to NIL. They all, and the NIL needs to be talking to the collective. Everyone needs to be looped in like all the time. And I know it's like probably super annoying and probably going to be annoying for them. But at the same time, you need to know what's going on. You just do. Like you can't, you can't basically, you can't afford to not know what's going on. And then, you know, two months later, you're getting you know, an email from the NCAA with a list of violations like that. You can't have that. So I definitely think communication between these departments, they're going to have to get more collaborative. They're going to have to talk more. They're going to have to meet more. They're going to have to stay involved. And everyone needs to know like what's going on. It has to be a group effort or it, it's going to fail. My thought, I have a couple of thoughts. First off, I feel like this, um, this memo won't actually make it to the public. I, I think it, the NCAA either won't release it or it'll get amended because I just can't see them uh, pushing something like this. I think it just creates more problems, but that's not fun to talk about. If it does, uh, I think the the main people that are going to be impacted by this are players and coaches at like mid-major schools, think like the MAC or whatever, that are getting, their players are getting tampered with by bigger schools that, you know, the collectors are saying like, Hey man, you had a great season. Come here, we'll give you 50k, whatever. Coaches about to start snitching, snitching hard. Actually, like, hey, I got receipts. Screen, I have a screenshot. Go, like, go get them, NCAA. Uh, like heavy. So I think the uh, enforcement committee hotline will be ringing hard because we've already seen so many coaches come out and speak up about like, hey, like, what are you gonna do about my kids getting tampered by collectives? What are you gonna do about that? Um, from even Power Five institutions, like uh, we're seeing. I don't remember the school. I think it was actually I don't really miss big, but that was a big power five institution. I believe SEC school. It's like, yeah, like these these coaches are coming after my kids. Like, how are we supposed to stop that? And three, just in case this happens, I'm gonna get really good at writing waivers. 
Yeah, I mean, let's let's be honest. I I was reading an on three nil article the other day, and I remember it said, uh, like pages of guidelines are pretty much useless unless they're actually going to be enforced. And so yeah. the issue with them coming out with this memo and it being so radical shows that maybe I you know I hope enforcement is coming. But maybe they're still working through it. Maybe they're testing the waters, seeing what the reaction is, and seeing if they can find a middle ground. Also, I wanted to speak to the uh, communication part. I don't know what most collectives are like, but we have a very good relationship with ours. Um, strictly like educational, obviously. Like, hey, is this cool? Is this compliant? Yeah, cool. Go ahead, do your thing. So I figured. All, I know a lot of schools. Obviously, we we have one collective, but. I know a lot of schools have like six or something crazy like that. So I can imagine for those schools, those like larger schools, they're dealing with that. Like you might have a good relationship with five of your collectives, but you have the one that's trying to induce recruits and that's the one that'll get you in trouble. Like that's when I could see like this being a real issue. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And I think the biggest detriment you can have as a university is multiple collectives who are not willing to get on the same page that are not willing to work together because at the end of the day a lot of these people that are involved with the collectives maybe do not come from a sports background and especially in the world of college athletics you're not only hurting your school that you're trying to support but you're hurting individual student athletes whose eligibility is on the line yeah and when you look at a lot of uh the big the big ticket donors to collectives they're business people they're not really worried about like compliance things and stuff like they want to make an investment right. in their institution to this 501c3 that they'll get a tax write-off for and also maybe win a national championship so like these rules really don't like like i'm thinking from a person i don't want to speak for anybody but i'm thinking from the perspective of like someone that has millions of dollars to throw around i don't care about these rules especially if they're not going to be enforced like, I'm going to go and, hey, like, you want to come play for my institution? I'll offer you, like, X amount of money. And, like, I'm going to do what I can out my institution because that's what I'm able to do. So I can, I feel like the average donator to a collective, you know, your your basic fan, like, I want to support my institution. Here's 50 bucks a month or $25 a month. They're, you know, they're not inducing recruits, but, like, your big ticket guys and gals, like, that's where I think a lot of the issues might come. Agreed. And another thing that, is interesting to me too and see how this involves is are we ever going to just punish the institution or are we going to start like coming for the kids eligibility and not saying i would want them to do that but i feel like that's a possibility that like at some point if people just you know keep running rapid with stuff they're gonna be like hey we gotta start getting the athletes because i know right now it's not you know it's more institutional focus it's not like oh we're gonna you know give you one you know you're gonna lose a year of eligibility but I definitely think um, if they can't get it under control, that they will start coming for the kids out the athletic um, eligibility, and that would be not fun. Yeah, yeah, and that was my first thought too. Is like, okay, it seems like the NCAA's goal is not to punish individual student athletes, but to punish institutions when institutions can't even get on the same page with their collectives in order to educate these donors properly, and so you almost have to bring in a third party or somebody to manage the education piece of that in order to have a good working relationship that's above 
board for the NCAA, especially with this presumption of guilty until proven innocent. So it's public yeah. knowledge, so we can talk about it. I think this all boils down to this whole, and I don't know the details of the, the case, but what do y'all think about this whole Florida quarterback situation where he got released from his NLI because he's promised X amount of dollars and he didn't get them? I think that's exactly the type of things the uh, NCAA is looking to enforce here. And just like to your point, Demetria, like at what point do they go after? Like, do they take your eligibility from him because was, you know, doing something that could have been impermissible? You know, like I feel like those type of situations are what they're trying to curb. Oh, absolutely. And I think that situation in itself could have went there. Yeah. That was a very dangerous situation for Florida, and I hope they learn from that. That's what I'll I'll say on that. (laughs) Well, and let's talk about it. Uh, Could you give a little background for our listeners just about how that started and where it went? And this is all allegedly, according to the articles I've read. Um, Prospect was, it was a quarterback, so obviously he can demand the most money. High school prospect was promised $13 million from X Collective, um, signed his NLI, committed to the University of Florida, and then at some point, during the process, I guess, asked for money or some kind of like, hey, like, show me the money. And it fell through. And so he was like, well, you know, I'm not coming. So then he, you know, asked for a release from his NLI. I always get NLI and NIL mixed up. I don't know about y'all. But yeah, asked, yeah. asked for a release from his uh, NLI. Um, all the time. <laughs> and so let's, like, for listeners, NLI is National Letter of Intent. NIL is Name, Image, and Likeness. <laughs> both very important to this podcast no i'm gonna say i could take y'all down a rabbit hole and in a lot of stuff but i'm not gonna do it today <laughs> but he asked for release from his national letter of intent and it became a whole thing because in florida had to do some deliberation like okay like are we letting him go because he's at you know then and like i said all this is alleged but they're like he's asking for a release because he's not getting money but like that don't got nothing to do with us because if he didn't make that promise with us he said he's gonna like come play football here so do we release him or like do we hold them? Like, you know, so then it becomes a real sticky situation. And then like, just being straight up, I'm wondering like, does the kid go, well, let me out of this or I'm, I'm snitching like to the NCAA. I got receipts like that they told me this, you know, I don't know if that's what happened, but I think it just becomes a very dangerous situation very quickly when you get into promising recruit stuff, which is why I completely and 100% agree with the NCAA. I got no NIL for recruiting inducements, like at any point. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I feel like in certain instances, we're going to, I mean, in the future, you can see like, you know, possible people like, you know, bringing forth, like suing each other or like suing, you know, an athlete being like, hey, they said this and, you know, they, I detrimentally relied on it and went to the school and now you have a whole like, you know, tort case or something crazy or breach of contract or something. And I really think that's going to be a thing soon. But uh, people, that's why you shouldn't promise and you shouldn't. And I think that, you know, no inducements are promising you know, a set amount of money for stuff. I think that's a very good rule they have. I One that I actually really do agree with. I would be surprised if you saw collectives suing student athletes, let's say for not performing a deliverable. But I would be really curious to see how many lawsuits are filed by student athletes in order to enforce an agreement. Or like you said, detrimental reliance on a deal that maybe wasn't in writing yet maybe they talked about it but at the end of the day i don't think that there is a demand for collectives suing athletes for non-completion of deliverables or 
you know, getting out of a contract, mostly because the whole point of the collective was to elevate opportunities for the student athlete in the first place. And so I think you see more of the athlete suing the collective, not so much the collective suing the athlete. Absolutely. Especially if it's like, you know, like a $2,000 deal, like as a collective, are you really going to sue them over that? Like, you're going to lose more money in attorney fees than you are, you know, suing the kid. Like, yeah, yeah, it's an L, take the L and, you know, unfortunately, but it's like, I I definitely think it'll be more of a student asking soon, the collectives and that type of action. I do not think the collectives would have, unless it's like a huge collective deal, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars type thing. Um, I, I definitely agree with you on that. It's also a bad look for recruiting too. If you sue your kids, like not That's really something you want to bring Terrible up. look. I just followed up on the case and uh, the prospect in question committed to Arizona State today. Uh, so then I wonder from the NCAA perspective of, you know, guilty until proven innocent, does then Arizona State go in and be like, hey, we're going to assume y'all promise him something. I don't know, because again, I think it's you have to look at the proof that they're requiring to negate that assumption. So it. I'm wondering if you would have to have like records of conversations or phone calls or what that would look like. I don't know, but I think the whole situation gets sticky, which is why I can't really see the NCAA going through with this. I know they want to come down with enforcement and they want to get a grip on this, but I don't think this is the way they would go about it. I think the traditional way that they do it of, you know, um, going in, doing their due diligence, doing a, a nice layered, structured review would be good it gets sticky with nil and i know they're they've got a lot of the ground to cover because they've missed out on like a year and a half of things but i think they'll figure out the right way to go about it and not this uh you know i don't even know what to call it this guilty until proven innocent um method yeah that's a crazy standard i read that i was like oh my goodness like that is insane like but that is like you're basically already like lost you know from the beginning and that's not fair. Well, Demetria, we are so happy that we got to get you on the podcast finally. And I asked this to our last guest, and I think I'm just going to ask it to everyone who comes <laughs> and talks about NIL. But what would you say to all the people who are still saying that NIL is going to ruin college athletics? <laughs> I would say, if anything, NIL is making college athletics better because now you have these kids they're you know they're in school they're staying longer they're not worried about you know going professional making money fast um and it just gives them like a whole new realm of opportunity so to say that it's ruining college athletics it's just very out there and you know even like we said the statistic earlier like it's not you know ruining locker rooms like we thought it would be if anything it's probably making team dynamics a little bit more fun and stuff especially like when they have nil bills where they're like give back their team and you know do cool things so I would definitely say the people who are staying at Rooney College Athletics, like, it's not. It's really not. Well, thanks for being on with us tonight. We are so excited to have you back on in the future. And wherever you are, have a good day, a good night, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks for having me, guys. Bye. 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 This has been the Disclosure Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to support or learn more information, shoot us an email at thedisclosurepodcast.gmail.com and make sure you follow us on Instagram 
at the NIL Disclosure. Talk to you soon.